welcome to today's episode. This is The Music Mission. I'm Panayotti, and I've got a special guest with me today, a uh, very close friend from Year 7, uh, yeah. Enrico Manus. Hello. How are you? I'm doing really well. Thanks for having me. Oh, no, it's really nice, actually. Uh, mm. This has been, you know, a couple of weeks in the making. Mm. You were, like, probably the most excited person ever to be on this podcast, so I'm very excited to have you. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. It's It's a... Well, it's a moral failing that the others weren't all as excited as me. They don't know. <laughs> don't know yeah. what they're missing. So, Enrico, we've, uh, I know who you are. Um, I've known you yeah. since 2009. Um, mm. Could you give, your, give yourself a bit of an introduction, who you are, what you do? Um, yeah. Sure. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, um, as Patty said, we're in the same class at the conservatorium high in year seven um i was a music student uh specializing in piano which i did um for about eight years old and then throughout high school um and then i did my bachelor's and then so and i was doing a lot of the normal piano-y type stuff so i was a lot of solo performances doing competitions and was kind of on that solo career sort of route um and yeah, had reservations about it, as I'm sure a lot of most musicians have doubts as they're going about things. Yep. Um, but anyway, kind of plowed on and then did, yeah, did my bachelor's uh, in my honors year, sort of transitioned over into research more than playing because I like that a lot more. Mm-hmm. Um, so then I was doing that, actually started a master's, but then, um, you know, there's a little bit of just circumstances like a kind of job offer came along sort of out of nowhere that was not in music I enjoyed that and then um ended up using this opportunity to just transition into other things so um now I'm in a Juris Doctor law degree um and I'm kind of yeah doing that and not so much music these days but uh Cool. Uh, well, you mentioned two things. Uh, mm. One was that you were eight years old when you started piano. And that's, yeah. I guess, in the realm of pianists, that's considered to be ancient and old. Um, it is. I was, I was wondering if you were going to say, oh, that's pretty early or that's pretty late. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's weird. It's, I've had teachers who were um, maybe, I don't know, a generation or two up from me um, who said like when they were starting out like eight was pretty regular. So it oh. seems to be a kind of recent decades-ish thing that like the starting age gets lower and lower and lower. Um, yeah, so I started pretty young. It was just kind of a way for me just to give me something to do, something productive and interesting. Like, who doesn't want their kid to learn an instrument? And, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Do other things other than play Pokemon all day? Um... It's literally that. <laughs> literally. <laughs> If you ask my mum, she'd tell me it was because I was on my Game Boy too much and uh, <laughs> I need, needed to occupy my time elsewhere. Yeah, no, that's interesting how you said um, it seems to be in the last decade or so that we start younger and younger. And I guess that's kind of true with trumpet even. Like, I guess yeah. when I started, the average age was like year four, year five, and now it's right. year two, year three. And that's really pushing it because, like, you know, kids haven't got teeth at the age of year two and year three. Right, right. I had a piano teacher that said also it's like the the lungs as well have to yeah have to get I mean, to a I don't know just your your whole physical your body just needs to get to a certain point before exactly that that's why violin can be a lot 
yeah. younger and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Which is cool. And uh, the other thing was you started your master's. What, 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 what do you do your master's on? What, what were you starting it? Oh, I was doing research on um, interpretation basically mm-hmm. and how we, so um, it was, well, it was about a lot of things and that probably would have been a problem as I kept going with it, how to sort of <laughs> wrangle it down to one thing. But it was basically like when we look at a score and we use it to like, when we respond to it in a performance of that piece, um, what decisions are we making? Like, what are we actually doing that is um, helping us to come up with a compelling performance? So how are we responding to notes on the page? How are we, um, when we think about creative thinking, um, what actually is that? How do we negotiate that um, against this thing of like deference to the composer. Um, and you know, there's a lot of talk in music about it. it's not about you. It's about the piece. And there's this, this sort of very disciple like kind of narrative that we mm. use, you know, how is that useful? How is it maybe not so useful? How does it actually clash with the, um, immense amount of creativity that actually goes into performing a piece of music. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah, so it was kind of unpacking that and involved like interviews with people and some mm. analysis. So, yeah. Well, I guess we can kind of talk about that today. It actually sounds really interesting. Um, yeah, sure. We can. We can. I, I, I'm happy to go deep into this thesis that I'm no longer doing. Yeah, no, <laughs> and, no, this and is I'm actually not really... technically qualified to talk about. <laughs> sure. well, and that could be the title of the podcast. Um, <laughs> not qualified, but here we are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Performance interpretation. Um, <laughs> okay, so that's a really interesting thing for me because as a conductor. Um, mm more so than a as a trumpeter i feel like i have more control over what i can say with the music i'm not sure have you have you interviewed conductors i was only interviewing um uh yeah i was only interviewing pianists as part of that as part of that study so Mm. i maybe if i had gone on or it could have been something to explain but a lot of the stuff i was reading was uh interviewing other other musicians not so much conductors though so yeah yeah from my perspective, okay, so as a trumpeter, you have mm. lots of uh, mar- markings on the piece of music and, you know, you follow them as much as possible to, mm. to you know, what the composer's wishes were and how they intended the music to be. Mm-hmm. And there is literally a single way to play the Haydn trumpet concerto. And every single time I hear a student play it, not that way, I think, nope, teach them how to do it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and every time you hear a performance, someone who's like gone off and done their own thing, everyone just kind of goes, oh, mm. but... In the orchestral world, I'm not sure that's the same ca- that's the same situation. At, at least from my experience, I mean, throughout all of high school and throughout all the experiences I've had with many conductors, you just see them override a lot of what's written, and they go, "Oh, this piano, no, they're, they're wrong. It's a forte with a with forte piano with a crescendo on this yeah. chord, and we're going to put a random ritardando here because we feel like it." Mm. And so that's kind of how it's really, really bizarre mm. that i've actually never thought about like the difference between my conducting mode and creativity yeah. i really take complete complete control of the work and like yeah. the moldau i just added a random two bar huge huge writ at this mm. cadential point and everyone was like oh this actually sounds really nice and everyone just accepted it yeah whereas i'm not sure you could do the same sort of thing in a concerto or maybe i'm not sure a concerto or just you know mm-hmm. other other facets of music making sort of yeah yeah well in a concerto i guess it would add one level one other level of kind of 
command, if you would call it. So if, if you're just conducting an orchestra, then it's your idea. And like you said, everyone else needs to be on board and then it can work. Um, in a concerto, it has to be either one of our ideas and then the other person has to <laughs> agree to it pretty much. Mm. And then, um, yeah. Although I would be interested if um, in a concerto, the soloist disagreed with something you were doing, but that was just purely with the orchestra. So it actually wasn't it wasn't a moment that they were playing in, but um, still had an opinion on how that should go. How, the introduction, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, does that change um, the sort of weight of their opinion? Uh, or, I don't know, are you more in a position to just override it because it's got nothing to do with them? Or is or is the whole thing kind of both of your... Both of your uh, well, because, okay, so we did a concerto together. With, yeah, we did the sure Emperor did. Piano Concerto. That was good yeah. fun. And uh, I really loved that, actually, experience. That was, like, probably mm-hmm. definitely a highlight of mm. my conducting so far oh, um yeah you know like legitimately like was was the best and like working with you was absolutely wonderful um and i think mm-hmm. we navigated that quite well actually um yeah yeah for sure um no i think it was great i thought i thought um we had we didn't have too many rehearsals but we didn't have not enough so it mm. was kind of i think it wasn't a good um i think things got good at the right time i remember the first couple of rehearsals it's just so funny because like i I knew that piece quite well. Um, the orchestra had picked it up very well. I don't remember how I think they've done a good number of sessions just with you up to them. So I think, I think uh, one, maybe two. Yeah, I, but I remember hearing it, and I, I just felt like as separate entities, me and the orchestra, like had, had a pretty good like covering of the piece. Um, and then some bits would just go together and. Just because the orchestra's there, I just can't play <laughs> play anything. It's just become such a little culture shock, um, and so we just kind of had to deal with that for a rehearsal or two. And then, uh, but then, by, you know, by the end of it, like it was like we were doing. I think we were kind of past all the ensemble kind of concerns and just trying to think of cool stuff to do with it, which uh, which we did. Yeah, I listened to that not too long ago. I listened to that the other week, just to you know, now that there's been some distance and. Uh, mm. You know, so I'm, you know, I've heard a lot of stuff that I don't remember us doing because because time has passed. Just being like, that's cool. Like, this is, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is neat. It, it was, it was actually very, very neat. Um, so, so th- that's my view of like the mm. how to interpret music. Just really quick, like just like that. And I feel like definitely mm. more genres lead them lend themselves to more. A, flexibility perhaps of like Mm. you know just you can Mm. play around with this a little bit more for certain genres like for example we're we're about to do well we were about to do on the 6th of august but we'll see with the lockdown uh the johan de major's lord of the rings symphony Mm -hmm. which that kind of work i feel like you can twist it around a bit more than others For, for example mozart i don't think you can do much with that um what did you find in your in your in your research and stuff um i think yeah so so the the stuff you're talking about goes to um this idea of style which people you know bring up all the time and it's such a common sentiment that the the more modern you get the more you can be very very wacky with how you interpret you can be a lot looser with certain things um Mm. and as you go back to classical and baroque it's sort of very it gets much more restricted and you kind of just do what's on the page um which is I mean, there's a lot to say about that. Like, so even just the idea of like, you just do what's on the page, um, you know, in terms of what that actually means. So if you take, if you have a Mozart score, um, which 
usually won't have very, very many dynamics. Um, it'll have like a one word, usually a tempo indication at the beginning more than an, an expressive one. Um, and yeah, just occasional like a piano here and then a forte at the section change crescendos and, you know, but nothing, not all that much. Um, it's not like in between all the dynamics, you're playing a sort of, you're just playing flat, a flat level of sound. Like there's it's just, a computer. It's a yeah, you just can't. So in the act of playing, there's going to be variances that, um, won't have anything to do with what's written on the page. Like you just can't do anything about that. So if that's going to be there, then you might as well take some control over it. So it sounds good. Um, mm. And so then, yeah. And then we talk about style in terms of, so um, you have less dynamic extremes early on, as opposed to later on you um, there's not really, there's, you don't see pedal markings in Mozart, but most people I know would use some pedal. They'd be discretionary about where to use pedal in Mozart or even Bach. Um, and yeah, and so you kind of, I, th I think where, I, I think what I was wanting to get down to, I, th I think where the conversation is still interesting for me is um, if we talk about style choices in terms of permissions mm. as opposed to um, choices. So you can talk about it in terms of like, well, you shouldn't do this. You're not allowed to do this. This doesn't really happen in the style. Um, it's against the composer's intentions. It's not on the page. Um which a lot of the language gets wrapped up in around that. And yeah. for me and, you know, it, with a lot of, a lot of what I was reading, um, that's a little bit problematic because then you're just talking about, um, you know, it becomes the, 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 the craft of it just becomes this series of things you're allowed to do and not allowed to do. If you're a student, yeah. you don't necessarily yeah. know. They just become, you just, you just learn these things as rules rather yep. than, and you don't know reasons behind them necessarily. And so, and that can be frustrating because you're just kind of, you know, it's like playing the Chairman Mao card game where mm. I don't know if you, I don't know if you know it, but like, I think I've played it all once. And I the idea is that like one person at the table kind of knows rules and like oh, makes yes. them up and like yep. you have to, you, get penalized and then you figure out what the rules are and you know i found um, that so frustrating um yeah yeah well so when you're playing it's kind of like that you sort of play and you try things and then your teacher tells you no you can't do that can't do that can't do that and then mm. maybe the idea is over time you've been corrected enough that you just start to do the right things automatically you're not tripping the lasers um yeah yeah which, uh, i had i yeah. had that a lot uh with my trumpet playing yeah throughout all the years it's like you have to mm. do it this way and it wasn't really given an explanation as to why well, i mm. was but i think part of it also was that i wasn't mature enough perhaps to mm. fully understand it you know i was just in high school and all i cared was about pokemon um <laughs> and <laughs> i was like wow and then go home and play soccer um mm. and halo and mm. so i don't i wasn't me personally was wasn't able to fully understand it but now i'm just kind of understand i, I like there's a thing about historical historically informed um, perf yeah. uh, performance and yeah. like why do people do it and I, I find the explanation really nice so that when i am teaching my students and i am in a sense regurgitating um uh in, yeah. um regurgitating this information to them i give them the explanation because i yeah. but i try and get it to their level um yeah so yeah, yeah. that's really interesting how you just said that um yeah well historically performed informed performance is is just so interesting in itself um and like the the kind of objections you hear about it are also really interesting and that's a whole maybe we can 
come back to that if we have time. But um, yeah, yeah, it's like the other side, like when we talk about reasons why, and it's hard because at the end of it, this is it's art. It's so it's hard to you know you can't sort of break it down like a science. But um, but I guess what I was trying to do um was sort of be able to think about it in ways where we're thinking more in terms of um effectiveness, like efficacy. Um, so everything we're doing is sound based and if we're going to be able to come up with any reason for why we're going to allow certain things and not other and not other things um it's going to be because it sounds better if we do certain things and not other things it's very very subjective so better is going to be a problematic word but um and so i was you know i I eventually got to using the word compelling a lot which i think um Mm. it's best if you're going to just like you can justify anything based on whether or not it's going to sound things will sound more compelling or less compelling, more interesting or less interesting, um, Mm. which I think already serves the job a lot better than saying like this, this is wrong or this is right. This is in the style. This isn't, it just kind of goes to, you know, the reason something is or isn't in the style is because if you're not in the style, you're more likely going to be to do something that's not so compelling because what's on the page just wasn't written with that kind of, with that kind of intent. So, Mm. um, you know, because there is a lot of like when people, um, do object to how restrictive, um, interpretation can be, um, it sort of can go down this road of like, let's just blow everything up and, you know, put clusters in bark and slam the pedal down and do whatever we want, which is fine. Um, but like, I think you can have a conversation about, um, how we interpret scores without doing that. And if you talk in terms of more effective, less effective, more compelling and less compelling, you get, you get somewhere. So, um, I think that's have... really, that's really powerful. The, the, the usage of compelling versus this is wrong or this is right. I think yeah. that's actually really good information. Well, good terminology. I could just use straight away with my students. Um, mm. so do this cause it's going to make a bit more of a compelling, um, performance and, in fact, I can just do this to all of my students, even classroom. Mm. Um, and I guess that's how I uh, interp- uh, approach scores as a conductor. It's like this mm. will be more compelling to the audience, but also the players, you know, enjoy yeah. enjoyment in the actual physicality of playing the music to yeah. the audience. Yeah, yeah. The physicality is a big one because when we talk um, compelling, and so so the part of it was also this, like when we talk about what's compelling and what isn't, what actually is that? Um, and that led me down a road that looked a lot at gesture and physicality. And mm. um, so um, if we take something like phrasing, so this was my my honours thesis, um, was this was something that came out of that, whereas I interviewed a bunch of um, undergrads and just gave them a just talk, just had these kinds of conversations with them, but had scores mm. open and, and yep. you know, um, when people are interpreting a lot of what they're doing, like the word that comes up over and over and over again is, is phrasing. Well, I'm thinking about how I'm going to phrase this. I'm thinking about how like this is going to go. It's all like, um, like intense creative ownership of, um, kind of sound chunks at the phrase level. So it's not, we're not talking individual notes and we're not talking necessarily like sections or movements. It's all like, um, looking at things at the level of like at the line or the phrase. And so you just kind of like, well, this has a rise and fall. So we're going to taper it nice like this. And then the next thing does this. Okay. And then maybe you can look at how those two work in context and taper it. And then you kind of like build this thing 
out of that. But um, mm. you know, and that was that was interesting, and that was also logical, and it lined up with the research, which was mm. like, well, when we're listening to things, like a kind of the most I guess, organic level of our attention span when we're listening to something is between, I think it was like between half a second and five seconds. Like that's kind of how we're paying attention to stuff as it passes by us in the world. Mm. So um, Yeah, they, they did that for us yeah. in psychology. You have to do that in uh, in education degrees. And they, yeah. they demonstrate, it's like, all right, so here's some chunk size in it and you do great. And then they got past five seconds and they and like some people, you know, yeah. you try, you're like, okay, I can do this. And then they keep yeah pushing it and you're like no it's absolutely yeah exactly exactly so it's like so yeah so then it makes sense and there's so much like it's not like every single um utterance of sound in every phrase in every piece has a marking attached to it even contemporary stuff which has you you get a lot more markings as you go down like Mm. can't account for every single bit of that so um anything you play it's going to as far as the listener concern is concerned um is going to have creative parameters that you're in direct control of that have a huge effect on whether they're enjoying what you're what you're doing or not Mm -hmm. so if you if everyone's playing the same line of mozart that has no markings on it um and i play it with every note the same and someone else phrases it like that's just entire that's just like completely different experiences um very different levels of pleasure and engagement for who the (laughs) listener is but we can both say oh we're just doing what's on the page so um so yeah so that was that was one thing um and and so i guess when you talk about um style that's that's something like maybe the the when you're doing things at this level a lot and join them all together that's just kind of the aggregate of the decision so how much you so to take one example um you don't phrase something from triple P to triple F in Mozart usually. Oh, why? Why can't I do that? Oh, well, it's just not in the style. If you stop there, that's kind of an unsatisfying answer. But yep. if you, um, you know, but you can just talk about that in terms of, I think things we're all aware of, like in in terms of like the, the textures that that kind of music is written in, um, mm. they just don't sound, they just don't, um, they just don't track with producing that amount of volume from that instrument. So mm. the whole, the, a lot of the reason you can get sort of louder in um, in romantics work, romantic works, let's say, is because you know we're having um, double octaves in the bass and using um, a lot more range of the instruments, yeah. and like the textures are a lot thicker, and we're having a lot more pedal, so you can make a bigger sound um, mm. because there's a lot more sort of tools at your disposal, so you can make a big sound and it still sounds good. Mm. as opposed to if you're just doing that, you know, with an Alberti bass and one line in the right hand, it's going to sound very, very choked and strained. Yep. So you can do it if you want. Like, it's not a rule. It's not saying mm. you can't do it, but just keep in mind that if that's what you're going to do, you're more than likely going to produce a kind of something that's going to sound very strained and inorganic. It's not going to sound mm. singing. It's not going to sound vocal. It's not going to sound like, a lot of these interesting effects that the music affords, um, you're going to miss all that in favor of this other thing that's probably not going to work, and it's yeah. probably not going to work because it's on the style. Mm. It's interesting yeah. how you you brought into in you brought in like the notion of the technology uh, at mm. the time, the instruments and how they're developed, um, especially how mm. the music was written about that, and that's something that you know composers throughout all of history. Um, mm even to this day, always use the bleeding edge of technology from, you know, mm. 
from way back, back to prehistoric times where a guy yeah, yeah, yeah. picked up a rock and went up against a tree and goes, whoa, technology. Mm. Um, <laughs> and they're like, this, this made a sound. Um, they did compose the music within the parameters of what was available to them. So like, look yeah. at the piano during you know yeah. Mozart's time. Yes, it had um, dynamic control, but did it have as much dynamic variation as it did later on in the Romantic period? Not quite. Mm. Um, yeah. I'm not sure exactly the, I mean, you, what was the difference actually? Um, oh, it would just be like, um, even let's take the, like the strings themselves and that right. they're made out of metal as opposed to sort of the gut strings of the like early classical keyboards and yeah, stuff the like that. Um, the, yeah. like the, the pedal action is different. Um, the, the size of the instrument is different and, and what it can do. Um, and yeah. that's, I think, as far as I'll go with my very limited knowledge of the history of the piano. Yeah. I, I guess the composers yeah. knew that and, they, and, you know, Mozart would have sat at his piano and goes, hmm, this is how much dynamic range I've got. This is, yeah. Therefore, I'm going to write the music like this. Yeah. Um, so I, I've, put, I've been playing classical stuff where um, a bass goes pretty down low and, um, you know, my teacher's gone, well, look, if Haydn had octaves, he would have put octaves here. Mm because he's put octaves here and then drops them for no reason other than he just ran out of range. Yep. But now we have the range. So just do octaves for the whole thing. That like, is so interesting. You know, uh, in yeah. trumpet land, uh, in like Beethoven um, uh, uh, symphonies, uh, mm. the trumpet part, you know, it just does tonic dominant, uh, sub dominant, which is really exciting. Uh, mm. And then when you go high enough, you get to the median. Um, and so you can play the third. Mm. Uh but you can only do that up high. So let's say if we're in the key of C, mm. uh, you can only play an E on the sp on the line just near the top F, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so Beethoven has C octave, G octave, C octave, G octave, and then an F octave because that did exist. Yeah. And then when you have E, all of a sudden both parts, boop, so you have the top part going bum 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 ba, right? Mm. Well, the bottom part will go ba 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 ba. It just goes up, and so it's the same thing. It's right. like, well, if Beethoven had access to this octave in the trumpet yeah. part just put it in yes yeah and so and if there's any teacher that's going to say well you can't do that it's not what's on the page like you just have to ask but like why like how far are you going to take like does it sound better if you like in what way does it actually sound more compelling if you like like don't do what you just said and mm. unless you have a good answer to that then yeah that's the way i always frame it it's like i like i don't think anyone ever says um Oh, you can't do that. It's it's outside of the style. But does it sound bad? No, it sounds great. But you just can't do that. I don't think any reasonable musician is ever going to say that sounds fantastic, but you can't do it. It's against the rules. Um, mm. You know, within and obviously it's not as simple as that. But like generally, we I think everyone agrees that the the engagement of the performance comes first, and you know, respecting the intentions of the composer and doing things with a certain style are likely to get you to a more compelling performance. Mm -hmm. um, but like that, they're not, they're, they're the means to the end. And sometimes in how we talk about things, we actually lose the perspective that they're the means to the end. And it's just becomes about deference to the score and doing the composer's intention kind of stuff. Like that's, that's the end. And that's what classical music is about, which, mm. um, you know, before we, hit record we were talking about what topics we were going to do and like burnout came up um which you know we can still talk about if we want but, um, <laughs> because, it, because it's 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 relevant like it's if if the whole narrative around why we're doing what we're doing is going to be unfulfilling um 
and I, you know, was reading articles that did, you know, studies on students after piano exams and stuff and just looking, you know, and they all hated it. They were all like, this is the worst. I hate performing. I hate this whole thing. Mm. I'm doing, I'm useless. I feel like I'm rubbish, you know, um, maybe you're always going to get that to a certain degree in any high performance thing. But, yep. um, where if, what, if, if the reason behind what you're doing, your art form is to, I don't know, uh, preserve the music according to a set of arbitrary rules and kind of arbitrary claims to a dead artist's intention. If that's your objective, that seems to me a lot less fulfilling, a lot less motivating than mm. your objective is to make good art because you're an artist and, yep. you know, take ownership of, of your own creativity in, mm. in doing that. Yeah, and then that, that's a great way to, that's perfectly timed to just segue into historically informed practice where they actually try and mm. do that. So, I mean, uh, the only person I know is Hamish, who sometimes mm. listens to this, so hi, Hamish. Um, um, I don't know much about historically informed performance um, mm. practice, to be honest. Um, I mean, did you happen to interview anyone and get their perspective on that? I didn't interview anyone. Um, my uh, supervisor and a lot of the um, researchers I was, you know, in, in engaging with at, at the time mm-hmm. of, of doing this were were involved um, in yeah historically inf- informed performance. Um, I was never in that myself, so I can't. I'm not going to do a representation of that discipline. And you know, because we should call in Hamish. Um... You should. You should definitely get someone on to talk about HIP and, and get into the weeds. Cause I think, mm. I think that'll be really interesting. Um, and you know, I'm not definitely not the person for that, but, um, what I found really interesting about HIP was that, um, in some senses it's, it's, it's an extension of what we've been talking about and the kind of the, the, the thesis of HIP in, at least in terms of how much, how I encountered it was sort of like, well, what we're doing now, like the, performance idiom of the current age actually Mm. leaves out a lot of like, you know, for something that claims to be so obsessed about composers intentions and, um, you know, deference to the score and stuff, how we're interpreting it is so divorced from how musicians were interpreting it at the time of writing that we're actually missing a lot of like a lot of things that could be compelling about performances of this music we're missing because we're, ignoring them because um you know classical music claims to be historically informed like you're you're claiming to be historically informed as soon as you're talking about composers intentions and staying within the style um Mm -hmm. so if that's what you're going to do you might as well do it properly and actually listen to recordings from that era Mm -hmm. and, and see what they're what they're doing and it was um really so like one technique that um comes out of that school i guess you'd call it is uh this thing of dislocation which is um, if you have just like a left-hand line, a bass line, it could be an Alberti bass, it could be, you know, something like from a Chopin Nocturne, whatever, mm-hmm. and um, a line in the right hand, what was customary at the, in the 18th, 19th, early 20th century of playing this was that you would not exactly line up, like if your first note in the right hand and first note in the left hand are on the first beat, you yep. do not necessarily line up every single note with every single beat. So you might, really? yeah, you can delay things here and there. There's a bit of push and pull. This is the kind of rubato mm. you're dealing with. Your right and left hand are going to be like slightly out of mm. sync, um, which 
Now, depending on who you ask, that's either really interesting or that's heresy because it's, it's, it's not what's on the page. Um, and what I found, I encountered this location in my own playing like very, very organically. Um, I was playing, I don't remember what it was. It was like second movement of the Schumann piano concerto, I think. Mm-hmm. And I was doing the middle section there. And I was, I started doing that on my own because I got really into that. It's just, it's just beautiful. It's, it's got this gorgeous, it wasn't the second movement. No, it was a, the, the the middle bit of the first movement, I think. Anyway, this gorgeous, like, andante or adagio cantabile moment. And I was like, as I was working through it and trying to, like, make it work, I realized something cool was happening if I delayed notes, if I, like, placed the left hand a little earlier than the right or vice versa at choice right. moments. Like, um, like a rolling effect, I suppose. Yeah, or, or, or like, the, the justification, not justification, that's stupid, um, but the, um, I guess, a, a reason a reasoning that I've read um, was that it actually more accurately mimics um, how a singer is going to sing against an instrument, because a singer's voice doesn't just, like, come in and out, like, on an instant action no, like a piano a note does it's like yeah they have delay. to like kind of swell I'm, i don't know the terminology but you kind of they sort of swell into it they fade out they have to like that there's a moment and when you're accompanying you get told you, this you have to yeah give you them can time see to the breathe, sound waves you know? of a piano yeah. like yeah it's like a bang sharp it's exactly. a wall whereas a yeah. singer is like a wah, a little bit yeah. if you slow it down over time like even if you look at our sound waves now at the bottom of the mm. screen you can see that most of our things have a wah opening to them exactly exactly so if we're going to talk cantable if we're going to talk about a singing line which is all anyone talks about when playing at least romantic piano music and prior um why don't we do that all the way like why surely dislocation is just going to be it's just the next level of cantable um no we can't do that why not if your answer to that is going to be well but it's just not on the page then then that's just like a purely ideological argument that um, you're basically saying that like, well, here's the rules of what we do. And even if we can get to a more compelling sound, we shouldn't break them. And so we just have to sacrifice good performance, good performances, which is crazy. Like, why, why would you say that? You might say, well, no, it just doesn't sound good. It sounds messy and weird and like, you know, lurchy and, and doesn't work. Um, and then you're entitled to that and, you know, everyone can, can play however they want. And so it's better to have the conversation on, on those terms. Um, and that opens up a whole different conversation about like, well, why do you think that that sounds bad? And maybe someone in HIP might say, well, because the, um, the current idiom of how we play, which is so influenced by um, the, the rise of like recording technology and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so there's just been this incentive to produce like, consistency and like perfection in mm-hmm. recorded music um maybe at the sacrifice of some spontaneity of some um creativity mm-hmm. so we're kind of our ears have been sort of retrained to a kind of very clinical very um very very sort of clean and perfect uncontroversial consistent um mode of playing which is fine but you shouldn't pretend that this is classical music and this is how it's always been you should say this is the current style and it's different from the style in the centuries prior. Um, and, you know, we're, we're all adults, we're all grown-up artists. We can have a we can have arguments over, you know, mm. what sounds better and what doesn't. That's fine. But we shouldn't pretend that, like, classical music now is the default and HIP is some fringe, like, 
gang of weirdos who are trying to, um, I don't know, put music in a time machine and do that, which is, I think, a very unfair criticism that HIP gets a lot of the time. It's um, So I think if we really, really get down to it, um, a lot of what the points that are raised in, in HIP, um, if you're doing interpretation seriously, you have to contend with them, whether or not you, you agree with them. Mm. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was doing a masterclass I... once. Mm. Um, it was on some classical piece and it was on Haydn and he was saying, um, I really like this guy. I, I don't remember his name. I think he teaches up in Manchester or something, but he was saying um, that something he's noticed with a lot of like, you know, this, this, um, the importance of the or text, like, you know, when you're p- picking what edition you're going to get, you should get the or text because that doesn't have all the editorial markings on it. Mm. You should get this. Um, now there's a good argument for doing that. Why? Because if you get a very highly edited version and you don't know what's edited and what not, you don't know what the composer put in or just what somebody else who is just like you thinks how it thinks you should go. So you don't want to be playing. You don't want to be, um, just playing off somebody else's performance. You want to be engaging with what the composer's written and coming up with your own performance in response to mm. that. So that's why the old text is useful. He said that reasoning, he's seen it kind of get warped into something else by increasing generations of teachers and students where it's like, well, you should get the or text because it doesn't corrupt the music with all these silly dynamics and extra markings and stuff. And you should just play it and, so you just have your P here and your F 30 bars later, and that's all you do. Right. And so they're thinking like, oh, you have the or text, so you just you just play what's on the page. And mm. then you're playing clean, clinical, um, respectable, uncontroversial bar if you just, you know, keep everything level. And he was so angry about this. He was like, all it's done is just perpetu- perpetuate like a whole generation of like uninspired and like very pedestrian and like terrified performances of Baroque and classical music because all everyone's doing is just wanting to get everything clean, everything clear. Um, and, and so people can nod in the in, in the audience and go, hmm, yes, that's uh, that's how it's. Yeah, say. exactly, exactly. Oh, we and we can talk about too what's that doing to what that does to audiences. Um, but yeah, like, and all they're d- doing is afraid of making not just a technical mistake but like a stylistic mistake by mm. imposing too much of themselves on it where he says that was never the point the point was that you get the clean score so by practicing it you add your own in you're you're putting in your own markings and stuff because you have to phrase whether you like it or not you have mm. to balance the hand somehow like you don't find pieces of music that tell you what to do in the right hand what to do in the left but every teacher in the world is going to agree you have to balance your hands otherwise it just doesn't sound like yeah okay why do you have to balance your hands like where's that in the rule book well obviously you do that because it's just more compelling to focus the the audience's ears on a certain sound you're not just giving Mm -hmm. them a wall of sound you're going to guide them you're going to give them something you're going to give them a narrative like so you know and the score's not going to point like what's you know which one to do so yeah it goes back to like the craft of what you're doing is like taking ownership of every single second of sound you're making in a performance and doing something meaningful with it. Um, you know, and the score gives you parameters like the exercise is reliant on like, well, the composer's written this, you can think of yourself in collaboration with the composer. So if the composer's given you forte, um, 
you know, I shouldn't play it piano. Why? It could sound good played piano. Yeah, it could. But I think if you go that far, then we're in a different, we're in different territory. Like if I just, and there, there, I know of like really interesting researchers who experiment with like, let's play Beethoven sonata and just flip all the, di- it like, you know, reverse all the tempo marking. So you play fast where it says slow and play loud mm-hmm. where it says soft. And they come up with interesting stuff and that's great. Um, I, for me, I reckon, I don't know, that's still, that's kind of a different discipline almost, or maybe just a whole different exercise to what, yeah. I don't know, just playing art music is. It's all, That's almost becoming like, it's almost composing basically or it like is, yeah. you're, you're you're doing music like based on like based on the piece rather than mm. like i still i think there's something meaningful in i don't know defining what playing the piece is conventionally which is um you know if there's a p play a p because that's that's the composer telling you like this performance works like my vision of the performance works if you play p here however you take that what are you going to do with it because p isn't normative there's still a lot of like my loud's going to be my soft's going to be different from your soft how you phrase within it's going to be different so you know like take what i've written as parameters but within that do everything you possibly can to make it as as interesting as possible um and yeah i think that's what that's what playing is but it's so rarely like talked about on those terms explicitly yeah that's uh really interesting and also you mentioned before about like the my p is different to your p and there's so much room within that um old scores if you look at them uh before the press and before you know uh there were different sizes for different p's and different f's um in scores i'm not sure uh, if you've seen this but it's really fascinating actually to look at like a beethoven score like a mozart score like they've written f and then a few bars later they write f again but f with 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 like a big f there and then that's why you know you get to tchaikovsky all of a sudden we have triple f's and double f's because that was lost with the with the print they mm. couldn't get different fonts um very easily um so yeah. fun fact there but um mm. you were mentioning how you want to guide the listener um by balancing your hands and something you have to do and i guess that's what you have to yeah. do as a conductor is balance the score and that's something mm-hmm. that is again embedded into the culture behind conducting because mm. it's really fascinating listening to all this because this is very much a very heavy uh, aspect of piano playing, which I have being a trumpeter, I have no idea about this. Um, and that's why when people say, you know, um, performance, like uh, interpretation and um, what, what are the composer's intentions? It's really not that huge of a discussion I've had personally uh, or have had to have with people um, yeah. uh, on the level that you do or think about it. And so as a conductor, I've just kind of gone into it with like completely oblivious to this. And I see, you know, a score and then all the instruments are F F F F F F F F D crescendo to P. And mm. that's cool. But there are certain lines that that are in there. And so that's when you get your pencil and you kind of override it. Uh and you say, right, well everyone else is now going to be MF and go to PP. Whereas this mm. line is actually going to and you tell the the instrumentalist, I you might remember like quite often I say, actually no, Flautus, can you change that from a P to a PP and yeah. then change this sort of um this this aspect of the music just Mm. so that it just it becomes more compelling to listen to yeah um pieces like the moldau um with with its swells is just really 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 nice and those swells are actually not really written out that Mm. no not i don't want to say explicitly but that they can be brought out in certain 
parts of the phrase or certain parts of the entire music and mm. it just makes it like like that that's why i'm really loving the word compelling um yeah because becomes that's such an such an honest word to use that is just really open but also ha- communicates across an intention behind your thing it's like well this becomes more compelling so yeah. it's really really nice uh language you've uh yeah, that's really sticking with me. Uh, I'm not sure if I explained that, but it's really good. Um, I've lost, I've lost my um, my my train of thought. Uh, here it is. So, what I found when looking at Beethoven, which I think was probably one of the earliest scores I've actually looked at so far. Mm. Most of the stuff I look at is romantic, mm. and you know, new works as well. Um, and I found that with the Beethoven. Uh, Oh, I'm going back now. To, when, when did we do it? 2018, we did it? 20, Jeez. Yeah, eight, 18 or 19, maybe 19. Yeah, I can't remember. I don't know. But I did find myself doing that less for some reason. Or maybe I'm lying. Maybe I was just trying to navigate the, the concerto. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, how does time work? Um, but even tempo. Um, hmm. Tempo, rubato, um, something that okay. So we, we talked about lots of dynamics and phrasing, yeah. but um, tempo. So mm. that that's something that you know I do all the time. That, mm. That's literally that's literally the biggest thing on my brain is as a conductor mm-hmm. is time, uh, and I do feel that sometimes conductors might want to put in they put in pulls and pushes in mm. music and like and that that differs from. Conductor, conductor. There's this conductor. I can't remember his name. Ah, oh, I wish I could tell you his name. Um, but what he does, he takes every orchestral work and he slows it down by like eighty percent, or to eighty percent of what the normal practice is. And his wow. intention is to really bring out the suspensions in the harmony and to bring out the wow. harmonic movement. And it's it's actually really phenomenal. If you find that his recordings like on average fifteen to twenty minutes longer, depending, um, mm. and it's a very intentional choice to take down the the speed to. Mm bring the music um to a to a level that hang on someone's knocking at my door and they can go away um (laughs) oh (laughs) um yeah so there's a conductor but then you find other conductors like uh claudio bardo who's one of my favorite tends to push Mm -hmm. tempos a little bit more and then likes to end really loud and he he does a lot more interpretation in terms of pulling tempo and at the end mm. of phrases and at the start of phrases as mm-hmm. well as inter layer uh bring out the layers he likes to bring out his brass and that makes me very happy yeah so, so where do you uh, think mm. do, do you feel like you sit somewhere in terms of being quite um i guess conservative as opposed to taking liberties with the score or do you just kind of feel like you're you just do what makes sense to you at, at a time. Uh, I guess in the beginning, what I used to do a lot was I was, you know, it was what it was like 20, uh, still figuring out mm. stuff. And, you know, conductors don't really start. Well, conducting career really starts in your twenties, right? Whereas like instrumentalists, mm. you start at your age of yeah. 10. So what you were doing at the age of 10, I was kind of doing as a conductor at the age of 20. And so mm. like at the age of 10, you're not really that inclined to say, I'm going to do this to the piece of music because I feel. No, right. Right. 
but, but yeah. you'll do it because yeah. you've heard someone else do it in like one mm. of your like 20 recordings you heard all because your teacher said this could be a cool idea yeah. so i found myself in the beginning listening to i think i listened to a total of 27 versions of shahrazad mm. um like intensely listen with the score and making notes uh before coming up with my with my like frankenstein version <laughs> and I always right. justify right. myself well, well if you see if um if so and so did it it will be okay if i do it Mm. And what I am finding is that I'm slowly taking more control of it myself. Right. right. I think it's right. because I'm just understanding music as a whole better. So I can kind of yeah. just hear the the harmonic progressions, I suppose, um, especially yeah. bass lines I've become obsessed yeah. with. Um, feeling that push the music and feel where the yeah. natural pull and push of the music is and bring out things. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I guess like with obviously with just like more listening experience, you just get a better grasp of what um I don't know what happens and what doesn't happen like in any any given genre. Um mm. and so and then that just gives you confidence to then take your own like to just explore those those parameters a little. Um mm. yeah, interesting what you said about um being a kid, you just kind of do it because you've heard it done that way or mm. or um your teachers told you to. And that's still I think that's still um there was a lot of really cool research I was getting into that was kind of like treating that as the thing to solve at the moment. Like how can we teach kids in a way that's not, that includes creativity and that includes that, you know, how do we teach them music in a way that is not them playing just what the teachers told them to? Um, mm. Should we even like, that was a question or is like, is it just a fact that, um, you know, to learn this kind of thing, for the first certain number of years, especially when you're a certain age, it's just going to be quite um, not mechanical, but quite sort of technical. You're going to be learning how to play it. You're going to be learning some things just by, you have to just automatize certain systems yep. and you just kind of have to go through the motions. Do a little bit of what you're told and sort of earn your wings before you can start doing things seriously. Um, probably maybe like some of that is true, but that's not to say that um, the language of, how we tend to teach kids um, can be tweaked a little just so, you know, they're, they're aware of what the mm. purpose of, of what they're doing. I've tried do you to have do issues? not, I don't do so much teaching um, nowadays, but when I did, yeah, I would try to do that in how I would. So I would, um, you know, they'd be playing something and, um, and I'd be like, okay, so what do you, and I'd play it a little bit for them just so they could hear kind of how the piece goes. And I was like, okay, so what, um, like, what does this do for you? What do you think of start with? And if they're not sure, let's like, just start with a mood or even if they're not sure, just to start with what it's not like, mm. is it sad? No. Is it happy? Yeah. But maybe happy is too simple, but they know it's more happy than it is sad. So let's just rule mm. out sad, which, you know, sounds like very, very simple, but um, it, it goes to, um, there was a researcher I was looking into who I thought he came up with great language for this, where it was, um, we talk about music in terms of affordances. So we don't say like, you know, if, um, if you're learning a piece and it starts off very, very slow and then it picks up the pace and it ends very fast and excitedly, um, you know, yes, interpretations subjective and you should have the whole world open to you to you know what you're going to think but that doesn't mean saying something like that oh this is a slow funeral the whole time like that's just obviously wrong 
you know, and it's wrong not in a kind of stylistic or ideological kind of way. It's just wrong technically because mm. the what like is actually happening in terms of the changing rhythm or the changing harmony or whatever the tempo um, it just doesn't afford that. So if you're going to play this accelerating piece with, oh, I'm going to give the impression of like a really sad slow funeral, you're just probably not going to be successful because it affords some things more than it affords other things, Um, Mm. which is like, I didn't have that, like, you know, I kind of was trying to approach things like that, but then I read that and just kind of went like, yeah, that's exactly it. Like that's like the language mechanism I needed to be able to um, Mm. look at scores and make, make sense of them. And so, you know, and a kid gets that just by knowing like, well, I don't know what this is and I'm five years old. So I don't know the profound emotions of humanity that <laughs> go into and if you do, wow, all music. Yeah. God speak to you. Um, yeah. But I know that this is not sad. I know that this is going to be somewhere in the realm of happy. And it's right. like, oh, so what do you think? Oh, maybe it's like cheeky. Oh, okay. Play it like it's cheeky and they'll play it. And like, it'll be terrible. <laughs> like, of course, it'll be, cause they're a kid, <laughs> like, like, oh dear. yeah, well, it'll be, ter- what do I mean by it'll be terrible? It's just not like it, it, it you, you know, even if they can play it, but it's just not something, you know, in, in, in all the things you could do in performing this music in this idiom, there's a lot more interesting things you could do than what this five-year-old is doing, but at least they're responding to it and they're playing something that's purely their own thing. And so I've mm. let the thoughts come across for me from time to time. Like, is there something in letting kids play kind of badly for a bit, but they're using the interpretation mechanisms that mm. they're going to be using as professionals, which is like, well, how's this going to work for me? What can I do with it? And what's going to sound good to me? And yes. just taking ownership of their own music rather than teaching kids basically to imitate what most professional recordings sound like. Uh, This is also, I think, why classical musicians don't like uh, improvising because we're taught, right? I just made that think now. It's like we're taught like it has to sound, it will only sound good only if it sounds like this. And so we never afforded that opportunity when we were young to sound bad um, while experimenting with trying to make it sound cheeky or trying to make it sound scary. Um, And if we do start, you know, collectively start Mm. doing that um as a community teaching kids you know okay it's not sad okay Mm. try play chicken it'll it'll sound bad and like okay cool now Mm. try something else yeah Uh, those kids will be more inclined to giving improvisation a go which you know leads to composition and composition leads to new music which leads to yeah um, yeah exactly exactly and maybe they will be like i think there's you know yeah and maybe they'll be doing really interesting things with Mozart in that they're playing it in competitions and their interpretation of it is something no one's ever heard before. And, you know, and they do a CD of Mozart's sonatas and it's so cool. It's like really fresh and interesting. That's one interesting thing to do with Mozart or they um, think it's going to sound really awesome. 90% slowed down and on, you know, with a synth and with different. And so then they, and maybe that's more into, composer territory or whatever i don't know or maybe these free composing you know. uh max yeah. Richter did that to vivaldi uh the four seasons he yeah did right or maybe these kind of i don't know the labels don't make aren't that useful but i don't know but you know, or they do that and so then they'll, they're swapping it and flipping it and then they do an album of like you know remixes and, they, and, and you know and maybe they like rap over it and then they just become a you know and they're like a, a pop artist but they're 
bringing like classical into it like that's the yeah. you know and that's that's a different thing and that's still you know um i think when you plant that your job as an artist is to do interesting things with what you're given um then it's just going to open up a lot more potential for where people can see themselves working with it rather than um what it is now where a lot of people tend to get quite demoralized and i remember i don't remember exactly what they were but i remember seeing the drop-off rates for people learning music and it was just kind of like after year after around year five so mm, like nine ten eleven like twelve it's like people who are like learning classical music just get sort of you know fed up and drop it which um you know on the one hand like might make sense that's just, you're a kid you try a lot of different things as you get a bit older you just you know not do so many of those things but um but on the other is you know it looks like like it's not going to be helpful to um have something intrinsically uncreative in how we're teaching it when the thing is actually really 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 creative and mm. you know the the creativeness of music making should not be um lost in how we're communicating communicating that to kids Mm. Yeah. so yeah all right Rico I think we've come up to an hour basically which is a good length for a podcast yeah. well done on your first podcast um oh thank you thank you <laughs> did I do really okay good. did I you, you scored a um did, a did I pass out of, you, did I, oh. you, you, you scored a 10 out of um you can choose what the denominator is out of um all right see so if you want to make it out of five it's a 10 out it. of five yeah yeah <laughs> Hundred. Wait, damn it! Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh no. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thank you, Enrico. That was really, really, really uh, informative. Yeah. yeah I like that. Um, yeah. I, I feel like okay. There might be an elephant in the room that needs addressing, which is just that you know, obviously, I'm not doing this thesis anymore. Um, yes. Like, yep. We we've talked about it as if like this is. It's oh right, right. Yeah. Through, which which <laughs> you know, it's, it shouldn't be discounted. Like I you know, I, I was doing it and I enjoyed it and I written stuff mm. about it and was you know that this is if someone asked my opinion on classical music, like this is what I'm going to say. Um, but yeah, I, I guess part of that was I did find, um, and I was part of it is that like classical music was just kind of a thing I did a lot. I wasn't as invested in that art form for myself in terms of the satisfaction mm -hmm. it gave me. It wasn't giving me as much as that, I think, as it gives most other people who are doing it. Um, mm -hmm. And by the end of the thesis, you know, like how we've been talking, I've been talking like in terms of like, you know, the implicit rules of classical music and what we actually do and like how we think of it and, and creativity. It was, I kind of realized I'm doing a sort of sociology kind or psychology, I don't know, sort of general human behavior thesis disguised as a music thesis when like, I'm obviously very int mostly interested in all the stuff that's not the mm. other the extra music necessarily. So, um, yeah. so um, I maybe part of that is uh what inspired my and i you know i was thinking of doing you know a law degree out of high school and, and was i've always been into writing and, and stuff and just uh you know so i think i feel like my thing i guess is always going to be about people generally and how we act and what we say about what we're doing and how and the relationship between that and what we're actually doing um mm -hmm. and so music was sort of one version of that but um yeah i guess i'll i'm gonna live off of exploring as many versions of that as i can i guess yes. but yeah but i'll still hop on a podcast and act like i i know what i'm talking about yeah that'll yeah. be the, the the subtext the music mission we we hop on this podcast because we're like because we like music um yeah and that's, that's right. our mission haha -ha. exactly um yeah 
There we go. Yeah. You shouldn't have to do any more than than like it. Like that's you know, it's there to that's, be liked. You don't have that, to. That's just simple. This is there no barriers liked. to entry. Mm. All right. And I'm gonna hit the stop button. So thank you, Enrico. Say bye to everybody. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening.